Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 33. Our skill topic today is rigging. That that's it. It's just rigging. Tom, mm. skill class is rigging. Well, uh, it's a skill class three, but on three, not after three. So one, two three lift like that three so it's three uh, okay yeah yeah we're, we're gonna go with that sure um tanda what what uh, research did you do on rigging well i kind of went in the direction of uh looking up things on rigging modern day rigging for uh, lifting heavy loads and cranes and so forth and that took me to an interesting topic that you know there was a a position that wasn't necessarily a rigger, but called a stevedore, or someone who worked on the docks. In some countries, they call them uh, dockers or longshoremen or dock workers. In Australia, they call it a wharfie. And these were people who were often doing, doing the rigging and helping out with it. But interestingly enough, 90% of that profession was replaced when intermodal shipping containers came about. And so that was interesting and kind of what took me off on that subject, because uh, for a while I worked for a company that made um, machines that loaded sea containers. And so I ended up spending some time kind of in that world working where they were loading uh, loading sea containers and working with intermodal shipping containers. But some of the interesting kind of terms I found that we've developed some uh, terms that we still use is that... When you would show up to work in London, they called the dockers called this uh, standing on the stones because these people would just come to work in the morning and get a job. I, I don't think you should stand on anyone's stones. That's that does not sound comfortable. Well, you probably wouldn't want to be the first one there. That's yeah. that's for certain. Yeah. yeah. But if you're the last one there, you might not get a job. So it's kind of a toss up. And then in the United States, uh, where we would call it these this particular craft longshoreman it was referred to as shaping up or assembling the shape up and so i think that's where we get the term shape up or ship out and then also another interesting one was uh i believe this might have been either in the u.s or in great britain they call it catching the brakes when you would uh show up to see if there was work to be done on the docks it, would all, it was also called catching the brakes. And so I think that's where we get the term, did you, did you catch a break today? Um, or I, I could sure use, you know, I could sure catch a break. Like give me a break, Kit Kat? Uh, yeah. Like break me off a piece of that Kit Kat, Kit Kat bar. bar. Yeah. Yeah. Not sponsored. Because back then, you know, Kit Kats were enormous. Nice. And I don't recommend it. And I don't recommend them. And so that was that was interesting, but uh, the whole topic of just the the idea of the the work that was put in by the inventor of the intermodal shipping container and what it took to convince people that this was a really good idea and for it to come to fruition, and then when it finally did, how rapidly it just completely changed the industry. And there's a good book on it called The Box. I assume you're talking about like the modern day shipping container. I understand there might have been iterations over the year, years. Um, do you think there was a standardized boat layout before or after that happened to accommodate that? At, well, after that happened, because before it was just kind of random. Things were just on the deck or in the holds randomly. Right. And 
you know, you had to do the rigging and lift it up out of the hold or off of the deck onto the, onto the docks. And then these stevedores and people working the docks would also transport everything to warehouses in like piecemeal, like one crate or one thing at a time. And now it moves from the docks immediately to big warehouses or where the shipping containers can be unloaded, freeing up the docks again. That's interesting. I'm picturing them like loading up those big cargo nets and like hoisting them up and and then carrying them over to shore on some sort of a crane lift or something. Right. And then, and then that, you know, that netting or whatever opens up and, and then each individual thing has to be loaded onto some kind of carriage or wagon or, right. you know, and there was no, that's interesting, no particular way of transporting it. You'd show up with your wagon. And if you could carry that crate, you would maybe haul that crate to the warehouse. Every time you say Stevedore, I think you're talking about some guy's house and his name is Steve and that's his front door. That's every time you say it, that's what I think of. That's what you think. It's a, it was actually, um, I think Stevador is uh, some romantic language, uh, like Spanish word or Portuguese or something. And it was like man who, man who stuffs things or, or, who, <laughs> or who stores things. <laughs> no, it's forever now, man who stuffs things. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So I think if you look up the etymology of stevedore, it's like a man, a man who stuffs things. If you, <laughs> if you, if you translate that from from Spanish, <laughs> I googled it nine minutes ago. A person employed or con- or a contractor engaged at a dock to load and unload cargo from ships. Let's see what the Urban Dictionary says. Yeah, man who stuffs things. You're right. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. That's uh, Tom. That does not count as your research. I think it. I mean, I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> was that is that all you had, Tanda? Yeah, I mean, if if, if the idea of uh, these kind of transformative technologies of turn of the century are interesting to you, the the box is the name of the book by Mark Levinson, and it's just kind of an interesting, uh, you know, what it takes for one person to just kind of thrust their idea into reality and then how it can totally change the world. What was that thing called again? Intermodal what? A, the shipping container. I think it's called an intermodal shipping container, meaning it can go from being transported by truck, one mode, to a ship, which is a different mode and so on. I'm thinking that like it was the great idea, but this guy is trying to sell it to like some you know, kingpins of industry. And he's like, I've got this intermodal shipping container idea. And then they're just like, look, we're not buying whatever it is you're selling. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what, uh, they don't think that's what he called it uh, at the time. But it, it certainly revolutionized the industry. That's true. And you know who else can revolutionize an industry? Tom, what research did you do on rigging? I, I, I don't have anything. I mean, let me just give you a couple things. I didn't realize that rigging really was a, a sailing term. Like this is not like the way we use it is very different now and it fits and it's appropriate, whatever, but. Well, it's a modern day job position as well. I mean, and a, and a well-paying one. Yeah, but not just for ships. No, more for anymore. like cranes and. Yeah, There's totally. industrial rigging is what you're talking about. And I think that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. But I, I don't know. Let me, I'll cover the etymology for you guys. But um, uh, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is why I want to read this, because it's from a thing that I haven't thought about in 20 years. Uh, rigging derives from the Anglo-Saxon rigen or ringing. I said both of those wrong, uh, which means to clothe, 
which is weird. And it says the same source points out that rigging a sailing vessel refers to putting all the components in place to allow it to function, including the masts, spars, sails, and the rigging, which is like defining a term with with the same term. But I didn't realize it was like purely a sailing term until, I don't know, until recently? 100 years? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it says, it talks about types of rigging, but I know PJ's probably going to tell us the 42 types of rigging, so I'll let PJ do that. Yeah. Well, since Tom's always second-guessing <gasps> us and looking stuff up on Wait. Google, I thought I would actually grab my encyclopedia <laughs> yes! and just uh, right. and just see if he's just telling us that or if it's if it's true. Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Sidebar with the audience. Tanda, Tanda literally just pulled out like an inch and a half thick Encyclopedia Britannica, opened it up and started leafing through it. All right, end of sidebar. Everybody's back. PJ, what'd you find on rigging? I'm waiting for you to read this thing from the book. What what is that? What does it say? Oh man, you mean I? Okay, go ahead and do your thing, and I'm gonna. <laughs> Did you grab the R? You just grabbed a random book, didn't you? I you just grabbed a grab random one because there's a bunch of <laughs> piled in piled in front of the R. That, but I'm happy to move it if PJ wants to go. I'll go. She's I'll go grab the R. She's got 42 volumes of R for the, for the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's, yeah, it's called it's called the uh, the Pirates Encyclopedia, and so like most of the volumes are R. There you go. There you go. That's that's well it. Well done. So, as you two have both pointed out, Tanda just ran off again. She's got to put the book back. It's out of place. No, she left the book. No, she didn't. Yes, she did. She left the book, I don't and see I, it. I think she went to go get a beer. I think that's what happened. I think she started. Probably. She's day drinking again. Oh, I can see her in the reflection of the. Oh, now she's got a. She's got an. I she think she art. went. She got the correct volume now. I think so. The other volume was just a was just a stand in. Now this is the actual volume that has rigging in it. I I just want to point out, uh, PJ, you're kind of avoiding your uh, your research project here, and I don't. Did you not do research? I I did do research, but I didn't appreciate the fact that Tanner ran off right when I was in the middle about to start saying what my research was. Well, if you're going to stop listening, that's the time to do it, right at the beginning. Well, I'm back. I'm back. I'm ready. Okay. So as you both pointed out, rigging has to do with sailing. And of course, when I think of sailing, I think of pirates. And when I think of pirates, I think about sailing superstitions. <laughs> and so I've got some sailing superstitions for the two of you. And let me tell you something. These are weird. There are some weird ones in here. Oh, weird superstitions? I never Yeah. I never heard of such a thing. I know, it's a novelty. So, um, did you know that tattoos are a superstition for sailors? I didn't know this. I know that sailors have tattoos. I didn't know that it was like an actual superstition. So apparently they got uh religious symbols tattooed on them to protect them. But the other thing that they would get is they would have a pig or a rooster tattooed on their feet. Because these were considered non-Olympic medal-winning animals. <laughs> and so God would look down on them kindly if they were in trouble and needed help to get to shore. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then again, most superstitions really don't. Uh, another superstition is that you should never walk next to or be involved with anyone that has flat feet or is a ginger coming onto a ship. Captain Redbeard had a problem? Apparently so, yeah. So it was thought that um, they were bad luck, but mostly uh, people with flat feet were actually thought to be the people to fall off the rigging. So there's there's the rigging connection. 
Um, but then uh, gingers in general were just ill-tempered and bad to have on a boat. Do you think the writers of Gilligan's Island knew this? I don't think so, no. I bet they did. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they did. Maybe, maybe that's why they made Ginger so hot. You know, who knows? Interesting. It Continue. is interesting. Uh, then we come to the superstition of personal hygiene. <laughs> so, um, apparently, uh, it's bad luck to cut your hair, nails, or even shave when you're out to sea because those were things that were traditionally given to prospering the roman goddess of good luck and if you did this while you were at sea and threw them into the ocean you'd be giving them to neptune who was the king of the sea and that was not the good idea because that would tick off prospering <laughs> well couldn't you couldn't you just keep all of your your clip nails on board and not throw them into the sea you know and just like arrive at port with a barrel of clip nails what if your buddy clipped your nails and shaved you and brushed your teeth for you and you did the same for him because he's your buddy. Uh, it doesn't say. I don't know if that would invalidate it or not. I feel like there's some easy workarounds here. I mean, we'll have to talk to a pirate. I don't know. That's all I easy. can tell you. Okay. There is a superstition about leaving the port with money. So if you leave the port with money, um, you're basically inviting disaster on the boat or on the ship. And so you're either supposed to have no money or you're supposed to throw your money overboard to Neptune for him to keep, which is why Neptune has so much gold. Uh, and this is also the reason why pirates like jewelry, because jewelry is not money. But if you were to like, if the boat got wrecked, you would be wearing the jewelry. And so when your body washed up on shore, they could take that and it would pay for your burial. <laughs> or was Jewelry, just the universal currency because they were sailors and they went to different countries. Well, I've heard that the pirate's earring, the tradition is that it would pay for your burial. That's jewelry. Yeah. A buck an ear. Yeah. Maybe two bucks an ear. Oh, with inflation at least. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, there is a superstition about putting a silver coin under the mast of a ship. And this is the classic, the ferryman needs a you know the silver coin in order to take you to the underworld and apparently you put the silver coin under the mast because if the ship is going to go down you wouldn't really have time to look for silver coins so if a boat is sinking then everybody scrambles for the one coin that's under the mast of the boat like that. i don't understand this i really don't but yeah there's only one coin for an entire ship of people that are about to die the bad news is the mast has been snapped in two by the violent storm. Yeah. The good news is, look, there's a silver coin under it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Then we come to this. This is this has so there are multiple superstitions here. Uh, women on boats are bad luck, and it's not just one thing. Like there's there's a list here. Um, so and it's not just boats. Oh, well, ships. The folks oh. on Gilligan's Island had you know. They, they were just doing everything wrong. I, I think Tom is trying to imply that women are bad luck in general. I think that's that's a... Oh, yeah. that's not... No, that's not what I said. Continue, oh. though. Oh, the head shaking threw me off. Sorry, Tom. Uh, so they think that the original superstition was captains didn't want women on the boat distracting the crew members. However, <laughs> the litany of other superstitions uh, kind of counterbalances that. Uh, you should never name your boat after a woman you're engaged to, or the boat will get jealous and never let you have peace. <laughs> 
<laughs> a piece of what? A, a piece of peace of mind. When going to a boat, it is bad luck to meet a woman on the way and certainly never cross them. Because a crossed woman is definitely bad luck. Women should never come down and wave a sailor off as it is bad luck, especially when they wave with two fingers. I would think that a one finger wave would probably be worse, but... <laughs> <laughs> so if you just want to mess with the uh, with your sailor friend you go down you know as they're sailing away and wave with two fingers and yeah he has the choice of believing the superstition or and jumping off the boat or mm -hmm. women should never be allowed on a boat because it is just asking for trouble unless there is a storm it the superstition says that a woman's bare breasts will calm the seas <laughs> <laughs> who wrote these i swear to god man is this is this is like some some gems right here maybe, maybe that's the origin of the busts on the front of carved into the front of ships oh interesting that could be it uh, now that i think about it there are a lot of busts at the front of ships uh, uh, this is the last woman one go to any anchorage where women are bearing their breasts as they lay out on the boat usually the sea is flat and the sun is shining there's not a wisp of wind in the air. It is also the reason why so many boats have figureheads of women bearing their breasts. And sailors have tattoos of naked women. So there you go. That, that proves your point there, Tanda. Mermaids. People think mermaids are good omens, but uh, the superstition is that they indicate an impending storm or they tell you that you will never reach land. So not as good as you'd think. This one is pretty nasty. Uh, there's a superstition about a call. A call, either dried or smoked, is a pride possession for superstitious sailor because it will protect him from drowning. But what is a call? It is the protective membrane over an unborn child's head. What? Yeah, I am. That that is pretty nasty. That's anyway. That's I don't even know how something like that would come. Up. How would you How would you know that? Let me Google superstitions of calls. <laughs> Well, it does explain why you don't see naked women windsurfing. Yeah, yeah. Let's just run with that. That sounds good. Yeah. I mean, they try. They try, but then all the wind goes away. Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. Uh, I'm going to skip all the rest of the superstitions just because um, I think the call one is probably the worst one. Um, there's other ones with like salt and whistling and eggshells and bananas, but I don't think you want to hear those, do you? No. I Tom's mean, shaking his I, head. I, yeah. Nobody <laughs> wants to hear the superstitions about bananas. You've just entered the dealer's corner where bargains are currency. Prepare yourself. It is part two of the dealer's corner for me from last week. But before I get into this massive deal, Tanda mentioned her dealer's corner from last week. Tell us what you got. I do have a dealer's corner. So last week, just before we started recording the podcast, I went to to someone's house that had advertised on Facebook Marketplace a headless two-horsepower witty, I think it's pronounced witty, hit-and-miss engine. And this was something that I had seen before come up. There was a gentleman who had passed away. This has probably been, oh, quite a number of years ago. And maybe 2011, 2012 timeframe, quite, quite some time ago, and at the estate auction, I kind of remember seeing his collection of hit-and-miss engines. Well, this gentleman had purchased one at that estate auction with the intent of getting it running. And it had sat in his garage and not really uh, um, been put into service or he hadn't got it working. 
and he was looking to build a SEMA truck and needed garage space, and so he put it up. I went and looked at it just before the last show, and then over the course of the week, he said I could borrow his trailer to haul it over to my shop. And so I went over, we loaded it up. It works. I mean, the mechanics, the mechanism of it is in wonderful condition. It's been oiled. It's the, you know, the crankshaft has had grease on it the whole time. There's a tiny bit of superficial rust around the cylinder in the, you know, the cooling box that goes over the cylinder. Um, but it's all free. It all moves just fine. The only thing missing is it doesn't have the ignition system. So it has, it has a little box for the ignition system, but it doesn't have a buzz coil or a coil or, or anything. And so I've already started putting together the pieces to, uh, to do that, um, to actually rebuild the ignition. And I don't think I will try to make it vintage. I think I'll, you know, I've purchased a regular coil, um, which as it turns out is not as easy as you would think these days, the automotive places, um, I would think, you know, just, I just need a cheap coil, but so many cars these days with electronic ignitions and stuff have a specialized coil. I was looking for parts for my old tractor the other day, and I think tractor supply sells them. They look like it's like the size of a soda can almost. Yeah, roughly with two, two connectors on the top and then the connector that would normally go to your distributor. But in the, in this case, it goes to a contact because there's only one cylinder. So there's no need for a distributor. I was able to find one. It cost me about $30 or something. It wasn't wasn't bad. So I'm building up a kind of a modern day buzz box or buzz coil. But I'm not, at least initially, I'm not going to go out and look for like a, a Model T, you know, buzz box or something to make it, try to make it even more vintage. I think these in the early 1900s were shipped with maybe not a modern day, you know, nice plastic cased oil filled coil but it was a coil but you know similar in construction and so i hope to hope to get it working pretty quickly it's in great shape tanda um i'm really curious how how difficult is it to find a headless horse you you said that this was a headless two horsepower yeah right yeah so basically if you take a horse and you have a headless horse you have to go with at least two horsepower to get a full horse but it's kind of like a two rear situation so if you have you have two headless horses then uh, you can make essentially one horse that seems like it'd be like one and two-thirds horsepower well it depends uh, on where you cut the head off of the horse but yeah 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 so it'd be one and one and two-thirds probably makes sense Yeah. yeah they just round it up to make it sound better Probably, probably. I didn't ask the guy if uh, if the head gasket leaked or if he had any spare head gaskets, which would would have been you know fun to see if see if it caused him pause since it has no head gaskets or head. But mm. uh, um, but the funny thing was I brought it back over here to the shop on his trailer and immediately gave my first talk on uh, hit and miss engines. So they're wonderful conversation pieces. I drove up. And the fabrication shop next to my shop, there were some guys that had pulled up at the fabrication shop. And this guy's trailer was just this little tiny trailer, about the size of the one the guy picked up the bridge port on last week at Tom's. Only it wasn't a U-Haul trailer. It was just a little tiny tilt trailer, which was perfect for the the engine because the engine's only, you know, maybe four or five feet long and a couple feet high. And I pulled up and there were guys with almost identical and an identical trailer at the fab shop next door. And I said, I guess it's bring your small trailer day, you know, just to kind of get their attention. And then they said, well, 
what is that on your trailer? And of course, they immediately came over. And uh, so I had help getting it into the shop because they started asking questions about it. And, uh, and that was sort of my ploy. But they started asking questions about it, and I told them how it worked and, and what it was and, and that I was getting ready to unload it. And, of course, I had two ready volunteers to help me uh, lift it into the, into the shop after I got it off the trailer. So, But I, I'm looking forward to it, taking it to some local maker events and just using it to kind of show, show people that, you know, how a how an engine works it's all exposed so the intake and exhaust valves are right there kind of hanging off the carburetor and and there's a linkage that opens and closes the valves kind of this walking arm that's all exposed the points if you will are just pieces of spring steel that touch a cam on one of the gears as it rotates around and so it's a really good visual as to how an internal, a four-stroke internal combustion engine works. And so I think it'll be a fun, fun show piece and conversation piece to take around. And I'm still dreaming up things um, to power with it here around the shop. Tandy, you need to buy one of those um, old-timey reproduction popcorn machines and then somehow hook it up to the engine and have it make popcorn. You can have it have it make popcorn. A lot of people make ice cream or or frozen margaritas or use it for running a little saw. Um, you know, I've seen people run a little table saw. A band saw would be interesting to run with it. And then the other thing I thought about using it for was to pump water here at the shop. Maybe uh, uh, eventually, maybe drilling a shallow well to water my plants and stuff here at the shop. But before that, probably just pumping water in and out of my fish ponds. You got plenty of options. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun, and uh, there I, I put the date. I haven't narrowed it down yet. It's somewhere between 1915 and 1929 because I found serial numbers from 1915 and 1929 that are on either side of it. So I'm still still narrowing down, you know, what year it was made. Well, I can't wait to see when you got it, like the way you want it. Are you gonna Are you gonna like repaint it or touch it up or anything? I might touch it up and I might paint the wheels on the little cart because they were never painted, but it really is not in need of, I mean, it, there's some chips in the paint, but you've, you've seen the pictures. It's the paint's in really good shape. I, any place that looked like it wasn't painted was probably because it had oil on it. You know, you remember, um, I don't know if they're still doing this, but like back in the early 2000s when they were putting like the hydraulics on those hoopty cars and they would bounce them around as they were driving. I think you should do that to the the hit miss engine. Just just to bounce. <laughs> I just I think that would be hilarious. Make it make it a low rider. Yeah, just get some little tiny hydraulics, and then you know you're like you're bringing it into the show, and everybody's oh look at that, and then you're like, <laughs> and then it's like bouncing all over the place. Oh, I do live within an easy days, um, or even a few hours drive of the low rider capital of the world. So yeah, yeah, I'm sure there are some events that I could uh, could take it to. Uh, the hit and, hit and miss low rider. That would be hilarious if you actually took it to a shop to have them do the hydraulics, and they're like, "What is this?" <laughs> <laughs> I've already you know, when I've gone in to buy bits and pieces, like I bought a coil and a condenser and some various spark plug wire and stuff to rewire it. And of course, now you walk into a parts store and they're like, uh, "Yeah, make and model." And I'm like, "Well, I'm yeah. I'm just looking for a coil." And they're like, uh, "For what year?" Yeah. And and, yeah. and I've been nice and just told them, you know, well, it's not really for a particular year. And I should have just said, I think it's a 1917 
witty two horsepower, you know, and let him try and look it up. One guy refused to look it up without a make and model. And I finally was just like, you can't just type in distributor and have your system look it up. And he reluctantly did. And and I was able to find uh, a ballast resistor to go with my system. But yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate that if you don't have, you know, they're not willing to put in a little extra effort to search through their system. I don't think they know how to, Tanda, because I had that same exact problem a few years back. I had a bandsaw that had a broken belt, just a regular V-belt, and I took the belt. Like it had cracks and everything, but you could tell what size it was. And I took it to an auto parts store because that was the only place I knew to get a belt from. And I'm like, I need this belt. And he goes, what's the make and model? And I'm like, it came off a bandsaw. And he looks at me and it was like I was. It's a craftsman. Yeah. He looks at me like I'm speaking a totally different language. And I'm like, look, dude, there's a whole thing of belts right behind you. Just go match it up. Well, it might not be the exact size. Just get me close to the size, okay? Jeez. It doesn't have to be to the micron. I just had a very similar experience trying to buy a... Um, the governor? What's the part I needed for my tractor? The governor? No. Oh, an ignition coil? Yeah. And I was like, do you guys have ignition coils? And she points to a rack. She's like, well, when people need them for tractors, they usually go over here. And I look, and they're like tiny, like you know, for small lawn tractors. And it's kind of cool that they have that stuff. But I was like, no, I need something bigger. You know, and I don't know what I'm doing, but she's like, I need a make and model. I'm like, you know, I thought for a second, I'm like, F-150? Like, can I see that one? <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, all right, F-150, it's probably one of the cheapest options because it's just like, you know, the most sold vehicle in the world. And uh, I know they have it, right? So she shows it to me. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, you know, just curious, what's an F-250 look like? And she looks it up, and she's like, oh, it's the same part. I went, all right, I'll take this. You know, I'm like, if it can start those engines, it can start my, you know, 45, 50-horsepower tractor. Exactly. PJ, did you get any deals? <laughs> no? Uh, <laughs> I'm all out. Yeah, that was it. I was riding on Tanda's coattails there. No deals? All right. Well, thanks for joining us on Dealer's Corner. Happy to see you next week. So this deal is called I Went to Visit the Don. CMAT Make has a neighbor who is unfortunately having to, his neighbor's name is Don. He's having to move out of his house. He's got to move into assisted living. He's an elderly gentleman, and um, his wife had a stroke, and she can't get around very well, and neither can he. So they both have to go into assisted living. So he's got to sell off all his belongings, you know, because that stuff is expensive when you got to go into those places. And Matt's like, hey, you should come up here. He's got lots of tools. And I said, let's do it. So I went up there. This guy had a barn, a double garage, and a basement all full of tools. Now, I'm going to do my best to just highlight (laughs) the things I think are interesting because this list is generalized at about 75 items. And when I say generalized, I mean like one item is a box, and that box might have 25 things in it. There was a lot of stuff. So when I got there, Matt was like, well, where do you want to start? And I said, where is it going to be the hottest? Because it was the morning when I got there. And I'm like, I want to start where it's going to be the hottest now before it gets hot. And he's like, probably the barn. We go up to the barn, and the first thing I find right off the bat, which I totally wasn't looking for, is a 1960s era Rockwell Model 38 hedge trimmer. And up until that point, I didn't know that Rockwell made hedge trimmers. 
But being that I collect Rockwell stuff, I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess I own a hedge trimmer now. There was a bunch of stuff in this barn. Uh, the one thing that I actually was drawn there by, which Matt had sent me a picture, is there was a box of 16-gauge extension cords. I'm guessing it was probably about, I don't know, 300 feet total of extension cords. And I'm like, yeah, that's worth it. And then there was a, a homemade dolly. But the dolly, you know, just like a square wood frame dolly, but it had these junk hunter blue and brass tagged uh, wheels on it that were made by, uh, I just lost the name. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, if you look at these wheels, these are like the Cadillac of casters. And so I'm like, I gotta have. I picked up a Trimount Manufacturing Company bench mounted pipe vise. It was made in Boston. Uh, have either of you two seen those um, screw bottle jacks? Yes. It's sort of shaped like a megaphone. It's like if you put a megaphone yeah. down. Mm -hmm. So it's like that, and then you screw it, and then it winds its way up. Has the hand handles out the sides? This one didn't have handles. It just had like it had like holes where the handles would go, but it was just like it almost looks like a giant version of a, a machinist jack. It's it's almost the exact same thing, only it was like twelve inches tall. Mm -hmm. Um so I I picked up the bottle jack and then there was this really cool vintage uh, six inch hanging pulley and the body of the pulley was cast i'm guessing cast iron but the pulley wheel itself was wooden which i thought was really interesting oh those casters were called darnell casters that's what they were sorry the only other thing that was in the barn was a weirdly enough nine inch craftsman table saw i don't i didn't even know they made nine inch blades until that point but it had the table, it had the blade guard, it had the miter gauge. It was a little rusty, but, you know, it was in a barn. So I'm like, all right, I'll take that too. With a bunch of bats. Yes, it was full of bats, 100%. Right. I brought home like at least eight eight gray foxes. What are those flying foxes? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. uh, there was a bunch of other little things, but those were like the main points. So then we went down to the garage and I uh, picked up a 115-piece um, Yukon titanium drill bit set, brand new. The, like not a single one of them had ever been used. Uh, then he had a works 12 inch 32 volt cordless trimmer with one battery and a charger. And then right next to it was a Black and Decker 12 inch 20 volt cordless trimmer with two batteries and three new spools of trimmer cord. And they looked like like they'd been used, but it looked like they were new. Like this this guy was he was up into his 90s. Like I'm looking at this going, when the heck was this guy ever weed whacking anything? These look like they were bought like within the last two, three years. And they both worked. They both still had a charge. So I took, grabbed them. They, there was a really nice set of made in the USA craftsman metric and standard half inch sockets. It was a 55 piece set with the socket wrench and a couple of little bits in there. And I've been looking for like a full set for a while. So like that was for me. I'm like, ah, perfect. I found a two inch Prentice clamp on vice, which was really kind of nice. Um, three grease guns. Oh, this was cool. You guys like oilers. So most of the oilers you find are like, they're about like four inches and they have a little spout coming out that's about four inches and it looks like a little gun. This was an Eagle oiler. It's a number 29, 21 and a half inches tall, one quart Eagle hydraulic pump oiler. That's big. Brand new. Never had oil. Oh, it's massive. It's massive. Never had oil in it. So I was like, man. That was a cool find. 
Um, there was a convertible hand truck there, the kind where you can pull out the handle and then it goes on four wheels if you got to tote some stuff around. So I grabbed that. Oh, this was the weird item. There was a there was a cabinet on top of an Atlas machine stand, like a metal stand that you would have like a, a jointer or a scroll saw on. Atlas branded, but Matt said there were no Atlas tools anywhere on the property. He couldn't find anything that it went to. Hmm. And he, he'd asked the neighbor and the neighbor was like, I don't know. <laughs> so I picked that up. It was, it was really, it was not in terrible condition, but it had the Atlas logo on two sides. And I was like, oh, that's enough to get somebody's attention. Then I picked up, you know, my, my glove addiction. He had two sets of elbow length, heavy duty rubber gloves. And when I say heavy duty, I put them on and like, I couldn't squeeze my fingers. <laughs> like, like, you know, like if you wanted to make a fist to hit somebody, the best I could do would make like a duck head. Like it just, it, the rubber was so thick and stiff. I could not bend my fingers. And then, and then Matt's looking at me and he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, here, put this glove on. <laughs> and he, he, he tried to do the same thing. And then he just starts laughing. He goes, what's wrong with these gloves? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, but they go up to my elbow. I have to have them, you know, so it's good for like diving in buckets for stuff. So I got those. Uh, then there was two sets of Craftsman offset ratcheting box wrenches. One was metric and one was standard. And I was like, I take both. Yeah, those are my personal ones now because I don't have any of those. I'm, I'm like wrench deficient in my shop. So I've been using adjustable wrenches for everything. Metric or Imperial? Uh, exactly. Yeah, I took it to Johnson's to get it adjusted. Oh, good. Then I picked up a brand new in-the-box Ferris and non-Ferris metal detector because I've always wanted one. He had two of them there. I was trying to take both of them, but then when I went to talk to Don later, he's like, Oh, no, that, uh, that one there is for Matt's dad. I said, Oh, okay, well, I'll just I'll take the brand new one, and he could have the old busted one. How's that sound? <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. Uh, there was a new old stock half-inch uh, Craftsman corded drill from like the 1980s. Uh, brand new 25-piece router bit set. Probably one of the coolest things I picked up. I wish I could show you guys a visual, but I picked up a 1950s Vornado three-speed fan. And this is like a classic round, almost like a spaceship-looking fan. And I found out after the fact that there's a Facebook group for people that collect these things. And uh, they're so popular that the company, which is still in business, is now making reproductions. But the reproductions are not as nice as the original. So I was like, and the other thing is that the these were notorious for breaking the three-speed switches. A lot of them had um, metal toggle switches on all the, like I researched it online. Mine still has the original switch and it works. And I'm like, ah. And the thing is a beast. Like it, it is literally like a tornado in your face when you turn it on. Have you guys seen the movie 12 Angry Men? Yeah. No. Yeah, I saw that. that so so there's a there's a scene it's a, it's a about a, a jury and uh, there's a scene where the guy wads up the little ball of paper and he throws it at the fan. Mhm. Mm and it and it wings off the fan and hits somebody, um, <laughs> comes flying back down to the table and, and I mean and this is a really like stoic, you know, and the guy just looks over and he's like that was a damn stupid thing to do. 
And I have a friend that I watched that movie with, and forever, anytime one of us does something, the other one is like, well, that was a damn stupid thing to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you using that now? Well, with this fan, it would probably would have like put out like an eye. It's yeah. like it's it's a it's a it's a beast. Uh, he had a box of electrical plugs, like the kind for a power cord, and I picked up. I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say about thirty plugs, something like that. And then he had uh, I think about five hundred toggle switches. I took all those. Oh, if you guys have been watching me on Instagram, you know that a while ago. The shop pixie stole my gear pullers, my box gear pullers, which I just recently found. But while I was there, I found a giant Ampro large gear puller and then a smaller three-arm gear puller, which I took those. So that way I can have something. He also had four sets of new old stock sawhorse brackets, like the metal brackets Mm -hmm. that you would put wood into. He had four sets. So you you could, uh, it was completely all sears. Two different generations. One looked like it was from the 50s and one was from the 70s. Still in the original wrappings and everything. I'm like, why does he have these? Uh, then there was a box. Um, there was a large box like uh, like you would buy a case of paper in that had 42 boxes of hardware, mostly a quarter 20 nuts, bolts, and washers mixed in with some wow. brass stuff. It was it was heavy. Are you buying this stuff cheap? Let me get to the price part. You're, you're going to love this, Tom. So it's, it's good. Um I don't think I talked to you guys about this, but about two months ago, one of those um, truck cranes came up for sale on Facebook Marketplace, the kind where it's got like a little pump jack and it's just like a big arm Mm -hmm. and it swings around. And I had gone down this rabbit hole of looking for one, but the prices were just not good as far as like I didn't have the money to spend. But I was interested because, you know, I'm always lifting heavy stuff in and out of the truck. Well, Matt, the, the double garage was not side by side it was end to end so there was like a garage door at each end so it was walled off so to get from one garage side to the other you had to go through this wall well matt opens the door and behind the door on one side was a brand new uh northern industrial half ton truck crane still in the box with all the strapping never been used <laughs> that's mine now <laughs> so that was uh it's like all the things that i've been looking for this guy has i was like this is fantastic oh another thing i also did some stories a couple weeks back about those nesting brass screwdrivers i think i talked to you guys about that yeah you said you, you never yeah. seen them before mm-hmm. so that was one of the things don told matt to go and get because he wanted to keep some of them but uh he only wanted like one of each so then Matt brought them back to me and he goes, here, there's three nesting screwdrivers. Do you want them? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take those. And I got two flatheads and a Phillips head. I have never seen a Phillips head nesting screwdriver. They've all been flatheads in the past. So I got two of those and they're all in like brand new condition. That's cool. Tom, you'd appreciate this. I got three cans of rust converter, spray rust converter, 3M. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised to see that. Uh, he had about uh, he had a box with about twenty um, drill chuck keys. So I'm like, oh yeah, Jeez. those are always good to have. I only have like four hundred drills in the basement that are you know all missing chuck keys. Uh, I got three spoke shaves. And do you guys are you familiar with the tool called the the skew driver? It's made by Spec Tools. It's basically like a right angle screwdriver. It's got like a little transmission. 
No. Well, the company is Spec Tools, and uh, the SKU driver is one of like my favorite tools from when I was a kid. They advertised it when I was a teenager, and oh. I own two of these. I own the regular set, and then I own the Marine Grade, which is I think nickel plated for corrosion resistance, something like that. Anyway. We're going through this box and I see a case that says spec tools on it, but it does not look right. It looks blow molded. And so Matt and I open it up and it turns out that it is a spec tools squeeze wrench. So imagine something that's got just like two handles that you squeeze together like a pair of pliers, but it's got a, it's got at the end of it, it's got a wrench, like a hex head. Uh -huh. As you squeeze the trigger, it rotates the hex head. So it's a squeeze wrench. But then you can't change the size of the insert. So what it did was it gave you like a bunch of um, hex, hex like shims to put in like inserts that you put in there to change the size. It was bizarre, but it was brand new. Still had the warranty card and everything. And I'm like, and it was blue handled. So I'm like, oh, it's blue. I got to take it. There was a 45 bin parts organizer with a bunch of parts in it that I took. And... The last thing I'll talk about from the garage is there was a Zephyr electric hand drill, which uh, if you've ever seen one of those, they're very cool looking. They're very art deco-y. From there, we moved to the basement. Uh, I know you guys know what a Fordham flex shaft tool is. Yep. Yep. I have one right behind me. Yeah. So there was one of those that had three flex shafts and two brand new um, pen-sized hand pieces, but there was um, no foot pedal. And... It didn't have an on-off switch, which was bizarre. It was like you plugged it in and it was on. So, but it was, it was a Fordham. Maybe it came with a foot switch that you plugged it into. I'm guessing so, but it was not with the piece. So I don't know, but I took it anyway. I, was, I have a Fordham collection. It's like my fourth or fifth one. Then there was a cash box with a Moto tool, model number two, which is basically like the precursor to Dremel's. And this thing had so much stuff in there, I can't even get into it, but there was an entire toolkit in there with the Moto tool. The, the last of which was a tiny Tim Hawk saw, which I thought was a funny name. There was a, um, a lot of these things were in very nicely made wooden boxes that all looked like they were uh, three quarter inch plywood. Uh, there was one that had an X-Acto battery powered rotary tool with uh, 300 X-Acto knife blades. Uh, it had uh, four Aristocraft three-volt hobby motors, um, two dozen Aristocraft 12-volt grain of wheat light bulbs. There was all these really interesting like model-making things that were in there. Uh, and so we're in the basement, and it is the darkest place of everywhere we've been. There's like two lights. And he's got like this big... Um, it's one of those... Uh, desks that has like the pull up top it's not a roll down but like the whole thing unhinges like a piano so i'm digging through here which looks like this is where he did all his model making and i open up this drawer and lo and behold what do i find a pristine condition thor electric hand drill you guys know i love thor drills so i was like ah i started making all kinds of funny noises then i found a container with uh, seven propane brass torch tips so i took all those for like uh you know little mobile tanks. There was a union toolbox with a whole bunch of vice grips, snips, pliers, uh, crescent wrenches, a whole bunch of stuff was in there, like a, too much to list. Uh, then I found two brand new, still in the box, in the shipping box, like it was double wrapped, Sears 40 drawer parts organizers in Junk Hunter Blue. So 
I'm going to be replacing the parts organizers that are currently in my shop with blue ones. Uh, I found two oilers. There was a wooden box that had all kinds of oil pens and grease tubes and friction tape and all a bunch of other stuff. Have you guys heard of Marvel Mystery Oil? Yeah. No. Tanda has. Tom has not. I now own two cans of Marvel Mystery Oil. I don't know really what it's for, but it was the, the advertisement. <laughs> it's a mystery. You wouldn't understand. Yeah. It's black, white, and red, and it looks like it's from the 50s. And I was like, I got to have it just on like eye, eyeball appeal alone. So I got that. Uh, then I lucked out uh, in the dark. I did not see this until I turned on my flashlight on my phone. There was, I'm going to say about 200 feet of 14-gauge extension cable, which is the heavy gauge. So you guys remember from last week, I told you that I'd picked up that 10-gauge cable at the swap meet that I was supposed to have bought power cable at Lowe's. So this, so both of the things that I didn't buy at Lowe's, I found from like within two days of each other. The swap meet was Saturday. This was Monday. So I got, I got all the cable I was looking for. Nice. And then we come to, I mentioned this last week, there was a tray that was, had the little divider pockets in full of different kinds of rivets, copper rivets, steel rivets, aluminum rivets, uh, probably about, I don't know, 8,000 rivets there was a lot and uh, oh i should tell you tom i did take your advice with the table that i was having the problem with with the 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 lock hinges yeah i took i it's i don't know why it took me a while to figure this out but i took a ball peen hammer and i hammered the rivets that were already in it yep to where they look mushed okay and then it everything everything tightened up table's fine right nice good yeah i don't know why it just for some reason it just never i never thought to do that then I picked up a vintage Stratobeam flashlight, which is like the coolest Art Deco flashlight you can get. It's got like this giant bulb on the front that's uh, you can oppose it like up and down, like you could swing it like to the sky and to the floor. But then on the back of it, it had a big red butt light. So it was a dual, dual light. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to um, switch that out and make it LED and maybe even make it into like a portable Bluetooth speaker. Like it, the, the box that the battery goes in was one of those gigantic uh, nine volts, like the big rectangular square body. That's mm -hmm. like, uh, I don't know. like Probably a six volt. Maybe six volt. Lantern battery. Yeah. One of those lantern batteries. Yeah. The big square yep. ones. It's like six by six by two or something. It was there huge. Mm -hmm. And then there was uh, two electric Toro weed trimmers and uh, a box full of wire wheels. So, and then that was, that was, you know, that was the, the highlights there. So. We go, we're, we're, we're going through all this stuff and Matt's like, like he's writing down everything. He's writing this list of all the stuff. Something I forgot from the garage. There was a brand new um, 10 inch Craftsman uh, table saw. Still wrapped, never been plugged in. The safety plug was still <laughs> in the safety bag. The fence was still wrapped in cardboard. So I took that too. So there's two table saws. Matt's at this point, he's like, he's like, man, how much money did you bring? And I had brought with me but then i had brought stuff for matt so like i had sold matt uh a, a my walker turner table saw that i'd picked up unrestored he wanted it unrestored and then the locomotive belt sander that i picked up last week he also wanted so those two things together bucks well let me back up a second the table saw was but fifty dollars of that matt had been to a radio show and picked up Craftsman motor, a Dayton motor, and a Shop Fox buffer for fifty dollars. 
while he was down there. So then he was he I just subtracted that off his totals. That's something else I got, another deal that I got, but that was like weeks ago. So anyway, the, the bottom line is I have $365. Like that's all I have. And Matt is really like, he's got like the meat sweats. He's like, I don't think that's enough money. I don't, I don't know if Don's going to go for that. And he's like, he's already like having like this like mental breakdown of like, I don't have enough. So I said, man, don't worry about it. Let me handle it. So I had already been introduced to Don. So I told him that I was there to help him out because I knew that he was in a tough spot and he needed to get rid of stuff. And whatever I didn't take was getting sold at auction. I came in to see him a second time when we had the completed list and he's going over everything and reading through stuff and telling him, okay, you can't take this, you can't take that. Like there was a couple things he didn't want taken. And then I said, listen, Don, I, I came here to help you because I know you gotta get rid of this stuff. And I said, but I had no idea what was here. And I pulled out my little clip. I have like a little binder clip for like, you know, the black binders with the silver handles for clipping paper. And I said, Don, this is the money I brought. I got $365. That's what I can offer you. And I say that and Matt's like holding his breath. Like <laughs> he's like, he's really nervous. And Don, Don looks at me and he goes, 365. What if I wanted 366? And I said, I'd have to borrow a dollar from Matt because I don't have a dollar to give you. This is it. This is what I got. And so he's like, I, that, that sounds good. So I give him, I give him the money and he doesn't even count it. He, I was like, you, you count it out. And he's like, nah, I trust you. And I was like, and he just puts the money on the table next to him. And he's like, I appreciate your help. And, and that was it. It was like, you know, so all I did was I just made it, I repeated over and over that I was there to help him. And then that like set the bar. Like I wasn't there to take his stuff, which is the truth. I, if he didn't need help, I, you know, he wouldn't be selling the stuff. That's why I came up there. Yeah. And presently... I am $25 away from breaking even. I've sold um, a bunch of the stuff already. Um, one more sale and I'll have, uh, I'll have made my money back. Nice. So that was it. That's a lot of There's a lot. There's a, <laughs> I, I, like I said, I didn't even give you the details. Like that was the overview. Yeah. It was a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got all the way from rigid tooling to rigor mortis in my encyclopedia while you were... <laughs> but you didn't find rigging? Really? <laughs> Were those deals hot enough for you? You got a sizzling deal that's burning a hole in your pocket? Send it in. Maybe we'll read it on air. All right. It's time for personal history with rigging. Tom? Yeah. Do you have a personal history with rigging? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Uh, I don't think, other than maybe Christmas trees, I feel like I didn't rig anything until a few years ago. Like, nothing dangerous. No mattresses on the roof. I don't know. But a couple years ago, it's probably been three or four now. I don't remember. I moved my first piece of machinery and it wasn't even for me. Uh, at my father's old job, they were clearing out some of their machinist tools and I saw a surface grinder and I somehow told them that those aren't really worth anything. You're not going to find anybody that wants one uh, because that was honestly my current level of, of knowledge on the subject. This is before I bought really any machinist tools that's fantastic tom it is they believed me and it was great and now i'm like oh that's at least 500 bucks <laughs> but uh it bought me some street cred i called uh sir jimmy deresta and said hey man you want a surface grinder and uh the price was right so 
he came over, I think he's, he's like two hours from me. So maybe this was like a two and a half, three hour drive. Him and Brett, when Brett was working with him, he drove his brand new, does he have a Sienna? Is that what he has? Or Sierra? Sierra. Sienna's my car. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it was a week old and he, he drove it there and to get it into, oh, so my father worked at a, at a scale company. And one of their scales is in their loading dock area. So we rolled the surface grinder on and it was about 1,700 pounds. Okay? Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, PJ just made some eye gestures. And they have a loading dock, but for like a tractor trailer, not a pickup truck. So we grabbed this big, giant, like, I don't know, 4 by 4 or maybe a little bit bigger aluminum plate. He, there were like these weird two by four layered ramps at the bottom. Obviously somebody had tried this before and we throw the aluminum plate from the, from the, the dock down into Jimmy's brand new truck, scratched it immediately, put the first scratch on his brand new truck. (laughs) And we just, uh, we took it apart a little bit, but there wasn't much to take apart. Uh, I think we took the table off. And, uh, and we just kind of slid it down into the truck and then just dragged it across his bare naked truck bed. And just like we christened the truck really is what happened. Um, and after it, Jimmy goes, I didn't think that was going to (laughs) happen. Like the whole time he's being super optimistic and he's like, he's like, no, we'll just do this and we'll get it there and then we'll get it there and then we'll get it there. Like, you know, classic, uh. Classic Jimmy, Jimmy knowledge. And, uh, we get it in. He's like, Oh, I didn't think that was going to happen. There was no way. So good thing. He didn't express that opinion earlier. Otherwise we would have quit. I got to say, Tom, I I love Jimmy, but who buys a truck without a bed liner? I mean, come on. That that should have had a bed liner in it. You know, I think he, I think he put in the bed liner and he put in the, uh, the system where you can slide things in and out. Yeah. After. It was probably just After, too yeah, early. The cargo yeah. glide. He literally just got the truck. Like, it was a week old, I'm pretty sure. And he didn't even have time to put a bed liner in unless it came, you know, unless he was able to order it that way. But Yeah, I remember watching your stories because that was the story when you were at Emory Winslow and you were looking around. And, yeah. and we had our conversation right. about, oh, I know who, I know those scale systems. I've worked with them before. And that was no that was the story when when Jimmy and Brett were there picking that up. So bizarre that you worked with that company. I mean, yeah. they're a very small company, relatively. You know, millions of dollars a year, but that's not a lot. That's a small company. Right. I just couldn't believe that you worked with them. And then, sure enough, you told me, scroll down in my Instagram feed, and there's one of their load cells in one of your pictures. And that was just right. unbelievable. So that was like one of my first rigging stories. I don't know. Even though that technically we just moved stuff, we didn't really rig anything. But since then, as you might know, I've been buying larger and larger things. And um, I think I think I'm attracted to things that I can't currently move. Because as soon as I bought that trailer and moved all... I mean, I moved like almost a dozen machines since I bought that trailer a couple months ago. Now I'm like, well, what what do I need to buy that I can't move? And I bought a an old tractor. (laughs) And even last night I sent an offer on another tractor because it was a ridiculous, it was like 500 bucks and the thing was perfect. It was running and beautiful. It was Alice uh, Chalmers tractor. So uh, I'm glad 
it was such a good deal that I didn't even get, the guy didn't even respond to me. But mostly I've been buying machine tools. You've seen the, uh, I mean, this all kind of started with the $50 bridge port, which I've told that story. And then I cleared out that a lot of machines from that machine shop um, that was closing or that was closed. One pain point is straps. It's, it's annoying to rig. Like I recently, I don't think I've even shared this. Oh, I think I shared it on Instagram briefly. I bought a couple of these straps called quick loader straps. And they look like, you know, regular flat straps with hooks on them. But there is a ratcheting, I'm sorry, they're a ratcheting strap, right? That everybody uses. But the strap is wound up like a tape measure in the back of it. Have you guys seen that? It's literally like a tape measure. You just, you hook on one side, pull the other side out like you would a tape measure, hook it onto that side... And it's still loose, but once you start to ratchet, it'll it'll lock it in. So there's no tail to tie down or anything. Uh, something I don't think I shared is when I picked up that South Bend with the nice base, one of my straps, the loose tail, went under the tire and completely demolished the strap. And this was like a heavy-duty 10,000-pound strap that I bought at uh, Tractor Supply. Um, and it's just, those little details are just super annoying. It's like a whole nother, you know, not only do you have to strap the whole thing down, but then you have to go around to every strap and clean them up again. And these things, while they're expensive, they're super handy. I forgot who told me about them, but he told me that he saw Chris Zepp using them or Chris Zepp bought them. And, um, I actually haven't used them yet. I can't wait. I bought, I bought two. And then saw how great they were and how they worked, and I ordered two more right away. Um, but if you go to Home Depot, you type in Quick Loader, and you'll see them. I've seen them before. Uh, I remember when Chris was talking about them a while back, and I, I looked them up. They're they're a little on the pricey side for me, you know, but they're definitely handy. Totally. Yeah, to get they're like twenty bucks a piece for like the fifteen hundred pound tie downs and you can get a four pack for 20 bucks almost anywhere so they're definitely twice as expensive but if you do it enough like i wish i had them before when i moved all those things they're just so nice to use pj what's your personal history well i'd say that the rigging aspect is probably rather new for me as well Uh, i'm very exceptional at packing i can pack like nobody's business. The extent of my rigging would include a set of cheap, like one inch ratchet traps that I got. I don't know where I got them from. Maybe even Harbor Fruget. It's probably years ago I bought them. Um, I've got a massive three inch one that I bought at Costco about 20 years ago. That thing is a beast and it's held up to everything. Uh, I, I left this off the list but I also picked up a two-inch ratchet strap over at Don's that was brand new, never been used. I think it's like a 20-foot. But then going to the quick loader things, Tom, uh, I'm, of course, like I said, I'd looked them up before. They were pricey. But my discount store that I go to every week carries ratchet straps. And every once in a while, they'll get like a specialty one. So they had a two-pack of clamp-on retractable ratchet straps so there's like 
you know those aluminum clamps for like holding on um a cap for the back of a truck it's like a, it's like a c-clamp almost mm -hmm. but it's wide so imagine that with a ratchet strap attached to it but it but it's auto winding huh. just like the quick loaders but the only problem was there's a six foot it's it's small it's not like a giant like i need bigger than that but a two-pack of them was like twelve dollars or ten dollars or something like that and i'm like i'll take that give it to me so i got that and then right after that like i mean like a month or two later they had it was either six foot or eight foot like mini quick loader ones where it was like normal ratchet straps with two hooks there was no clamp and i'm like well I, I'll, I'll get these too i mean they're short but i mean they're handy you know you could use them i pick them up when i can find deals on them now having said all that most of the stuff that i pick up is going into the bed of my truck as such, it doesn't really need to be strapped down unless it is hanging off the tailgate. So that is where the majority of my rigging has been, is I pack a lot of stuff into the truck, something's hanging off the tailgate, and then I will run one strap or like from taillight to taillight, and then I will go the opposite direction from top to bottom, like from the one side of the bumper up and over to the other side of the bumper. And that way it's got force in two different directions. So there's, there's no way it's going anywhere. But as I've mentioned, I have been accruing rigging gear. Over the past couple of weeks, I've gotten several of those heavy-duty toe straps to make loops, picking things up. And I just got that half-ton crane for the truck. So, I mean, like I'm, I feel like I've been gearing up to do rigging for quite some time. I don't exactly know what I'm going to be picking up. Because um, most of the stuff that I do put into the truck is manageable. But maybe this will make things a little bit safer instead of the way I've been doing it. I'm not really sure. The only thing I'm not 100% on is those truck cranes are meant to be mounted on, like, say, like the passenger side of the rear of the bed. And then it's supposed to, like, swing the arm over the wheel well so that it stores. And for some reason, I think that that is a bad... Like, I think it's a limiting position. Like, I, I, for some, I feel like if I could somehow work out an alternate method of mounting, I would get more usability out of the, the capacity of that crane. So right now in my mind, what I'm trying to do is work out what is possible as an alternative, even if it's just like some sort of like a swing linkage, like flat stock. Like if I had like, say like half inch plate steel, and I was somehow able to mount that to the truck bed and then put it on like a swing out arm so that the whole thing swings in like uh, two, two separate planes mm -hmm. instead of just one plane. I think that would like allow me to almost pick up something around a corner instead of having it to be only in like directly behind the bed. Um, do either of you two have any thoughts on that? Like I want to know how how to attach it in a way that it is not actually advertised as being attached, but it's still stable enough to lift a thousand pounds because that's the rating. Normally, you attach them to a plate on the on the bed, right? On the base of the bed. Right. You screw. You bolt it directly into the bed, the frame. So what what I'm wondering is, is there a way to put like a half inch or a three quarter inch plate 
on the bed and then somehow make it to where I put like an additional plate on that that'll swing, that'll, that'll, that'll rotate. And then that is the plate that I attach the crane to. Which way would it be rotating though? Think of it like a jug handle. Like instead of going straight back, it can actually go around the corner. You know what I mean? Like it, it can swing out. I'm just trying to think about like positioning. Like, But is that so you can, I mean, because the top of the crane swings already. So are you looking to swing it out of the way to load stuff that would it would otherwise be in the way? Yes, because if you think about it, if the crane is on the passenger side, that means that whatever you're loading has to come in on the driver's side. It can't come like, you can't come directly towards the crane because it just wouldn't, you can't lift inward. You can only swing it in. So what I'm trying to figure out is how can I get a little bit more of an angle so that I can lift something directly up into the middle of the truck instead of just like, imagine that I have something big that I'm trying to lift. Well, something big is going to need more clearance. You know, it's not just going to make it. You need a custom bumper. I actually thought about attaching it to the trailer hitch. Yeah, but then you can't put your tailgate down, which would be another problem. Well, I'd have to remove the tailgate. Well, and and you would have to, if it was something big, then you'd have to swing it all the way up over the side. It would still be in the way. Bed as well, which would make it really tall. So that's difficult. You you need a bigger crane if you want to do a bigger thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, you could do it. You did do a custom bumper and, and mount it to the outside. Yeah. Or you could mount it up front. You could mount it up front, and but then I, if it's small, you probably don't have enough lifting force to mount it up front and kind of telescope it out and then slide it back in. Oh, I don't think that would work. But it's, it's probably it's, much smaller. I mean, that's how trucks, cranes on service trucks work, but they're much bigger than what you've purchased, I think. Yeah, this yeah. is small. <clears throat> this yeah. is way too small for that. It's it's not it doesn't have that kind of functionality. The the footprint mm-hmm. is just too small. Like I've looked at some of the other truck cranes that exist, and as soon as you jump up to the next category, it's it looks like like a construction crane, but in miniature. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's there. This is like the low end. Um, but I'm just trying to figure out like what my options are, or if I'm just stuck with that mounting system, or maybe I'm overthinking it. Well, it, it only it's small enough it probably only reaches about halfway out into the bed anyway, right? I mean it doesn't reach out very far. I think the reach is like somewhere around six feet, maybe. Hmm. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think the box is like three or four feet long. And I know that that, uh, that arm extends out. You know, it's got a pin, it extends out like a like a engine crane. Right. So, you know, let's say it's like Four to six feet is the is the reach, I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm just uh, I'm trying to pre-disaster it. I mean, you could make you could make it swing out like you're talking about. It's just, I mean, you just have to make that super strong and probably extend it out into the interior or the center of the bed more, because it's going to have a lot of leverage if you swing it out around the back like that and then start lifting something with it. So then that becomes, you know, a big massive weldment. I'm just trying to figure out like it like I understand like the the physics as far as like the shapes, but I what I don't know is the weight restrictions. Like in other words, this thing can lift a thousand pounds, but like what is the like what 
what I have to, what thickness of steel plate would I have to use to maintain that thousand pounds without it like, oh. you know, breaking apart? Not much. But you got to remember this thing has to swivel. Yeah, but you use angle iron, half inch angle iron would be overkill. And that would give you your rigidity. I mean, you could. How do I use angle iron? Mounts to a plate. <laughs> no, but I mean uh, that that puts me at a right angle, like a ninety degree. No, I, no, I need no. To... I think he, I think he's saying make make the framework of the thing that's holding the crane out of angle iron. Right, and put your crane here to attach to your pivot. I'm I'm saying make the entire the additional plate out of flat stock. Okay, how do I make that flat stock? rotate safely without breaking like i can't just put like one center bolt through the scent that bolt's not going to be strong enough you could you could make a uh, put a put a pipe inside of a pipe to make your hinge buy buy two pieces of pipe or or dom that will slide inside one another and make yourself a big hinge essentially and then you can weld your kind of L-shaped thing or whatever to to that. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Make it so that it swings out around the to right. the outside. That might be a good option because I was thinking that I would have to be able to remove the crane from the assembly to stow it in the truck. And if it, it has one of those pin hinges where it's just like sitting on there with gravity, that might be the move. Right, and then you have the base and the and the pin in the truck, and you can set the crane and the outer pipe down over it and still swing it. That might be the move. Um, do you have any idea, like, on the thickness of the pipe, though? Well, I grew up in the oil field, so you just have pipe laying around that's, like, you know, heavy schedule that 40 pipe, pipe that's... <laughs> so you just use that pipe, and it's always overbuilt. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any oil field pipe. I'm well, in, that I'm in sounds cl- like a personal problem. You, you you don't you don't have any tubing that's been pulled out. Then uh, I'm in coal country. There's there's no oil pipes here. So schedule forty is that what you said? I mean just I mean if you find some heavy walled pipe that is that fits one inside the other, and you can look up charts of of pipe that'll fit inside one inside the other, and it doesn't even have to be like drawn over mandrel like seamless pipe or anything. You can find two that. It, fit well within one another and then if you make it eight or ten inches tall even if it's not a super good fit it'll still work fine all right i'm gonna have to look this stuff up i think we spend enough time on this but yeah this is that's this is like the extent of my rigging is this this is like i'm getting i'm 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 gearing up to do more rigging that's that's the stage i'm in which is which is kind of you know it's been coming along really like the last couple months i've been really building it up Considering that I got the, I got the first set of straps, at uh, at the swap meet in Carlisle. I bought another set of straps from a guy off Facebook Marketplace. Then I got, I got the truck crane. Just got that. I mean, it's like I've been building up just just recently for a lot of. I don't know what's coming. I have no idea what I'm having to move. But apparently, it's going to be something heavy. I, I don't know why, but <laughs> anyway. That's that's me. What about you, Tanda? Tell us about your personal rigging experience. Well, it's it's funny that uh, I mean I remember a friend that went home with me when I was in college, and we were making making something. We were out in the shop and we were welding something, and uh, and he was just like looking around and he's like, "Does your family make everything out of metal?" 
<laughs> I mean, where, where I'm from, like, we don't make barns. We make barns out of wood, and you make barns out of metal. <laughs> because it was just, yeah, I mean, there was surplus, you know, sucker rod and surplus tubings and, and tubing and casing, and, and there was just all kinds of surplus metal around. So, like, our fence was a welded metal pipe fence. Our barn was um, all built out of steel pipe and the rafters for the shop were made out of steel pipe and it was all galvanized metal on the outside. And so it was like everything that people would traditionally make out of wood. And I'd never really noticed this, that we had, we had made it out of metal at best. We like made a, made a pole barn with steel poles and then we wrapped metal or wrapped a wood timber on the outside and drove nails through it and welded them to the metal to attach the wood to the outside and then covered mm. it and then covered it with metal. So yeah, lots, lots of That's metal. Awesome. But I grew up, um, my dad had, a, was always interested in kind of doing excavation work. And so even though his day job was in the oil field for a big portion of his career, he, um, worked four 10 hour days and then had three day weekends. And so we ran an excavation business on the side and when you have a backhoe, you know, there's certainly lots of work um, digging septic tanks and gas lines and basements and so on. Um, but you also get a call a lot of times to just move things, to just lift stuff up onto somebody's trailer or to move something over their fence into their backyard. And so we were forever, you know, picking up trees and moving them out of people's backyards and, and some really odd things like dead horses and, you know, I mean, but... But it's like having a small a small crane. Um, so a couple tips for your tractor, Tom. If you take yeah. uh, take the hooks off of some old chain and weld it onto the top of the bucket, that's always handy to have because then you can just throw a chain through those hooks that are welded on the top of the front bucket. And uh, I think there might be one on it already. And and use it to hoist. So that's that's really common. And another thing that we did was we call it a stinger. So we welded this long kind of trapezoidal crane piece that then had mating brackets welded onto the front bucket. So you could pin it on uh-huh. and it, and it just kind of made like a crane hook that extended the bucket out another like eight or 10 feet. And so if you were lifting something up on the top of a building or we helped our neighbor build a big Quonset hut. And so we lifted all of the metal up to the top of that with uh, with this big hook that we had made for the front. And so it seemed like we were always, you know, and, and my dad just assumed that everybody, uh, he was one of these people that you just, you learned because he just assumed that you knew something. So if you're eight years old and you're down the ground and he's like, well, just throw a couple half hitches on that and, you know, tie a, tie this <laughs> rope on as a tagline on the end. And, and you're like, what? <laughs> you, so you just start doing something till you get yelled at, and, and, and then you figure out you figure out through the absence of getting uh, of getting yelled at that uh, you've done it right. Um, That's awesome. But so it seems like we were always always moving stuff, and and that wouldn't you know like be technically rigging. I mean, or someone who actually works as a rigger would it would be laughable. But then um, in this job that I had where we built these. Um, machines for loading sea containers, um, we would hire a crane to assemble those machines. And so we would make them in pieces and then we would have crane day. 
And so everything would get lined out, everything that we needed to assemble into the machine, this big 20-foot hydraulic cylinder with pulleys on it, and the bin itself, which probably weighed 12 or 15,000 pounds, would get assembled. So we would have all of these giant weldments of this machine, which probably all mm -hmm. built maybe weighed 65,000 pounds. And, and we would hire the crane and then come and, and assemble you know, it all together. And then the entire machine would get craned onto a, a low boy trailer and taken to wherever it went and wherever it ended up in the country That's cool. or, or out of the country. And so I got pretty familiar with, uh, you know, kind of the, the hand signals and the operations, because usually when we were there loading it up, we would have plenty of people around. But when we would get to the scrapyard, when it was where it was deployed, sometimes there would be people there that, you know, were very familiar with, with rigging, but they had never moved, obviously, this particular machine. And so you would find yourself kind of being the person to give give rigging directions or give give directions that the rigger would traditionally give to the hired crane operator that had come to unload the machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was really interesting that, you know, whether you're in Australia or Japan or wherever you're at, it seems to be pretty standardized, all of the, the hand signals and, you know, how you can communicate to a crane operator seems to be an, a universal international standard so that was that was kind of nice that's interesting but uh, so that was kind of my you know my brief encounter with actual you know like industrial rigging and i can remember one time when we were loading one of the bins and for for whatever reason there was some kind of tension uh in the line and the guy holding the tagline, the, the tension wasn't um, so that usually a tagline is something you tie off on the end of the load to kind of control it. And it got away from him. And this like 12 or 15,000 pound object that is just short of 40 feet long and eight feet wide just started spinning around. And all the people, you know, I mean, what you do in that case is you, you get out of its way because your instinct as a human is like catch it like so you know <laughs> have you ever dropped something and it's falling and you you know you shouldn't like be trying iron. trying to catch an anvil um but you do um so it was like you see everybody because i was videoing it and you see everybody kind of like take a step forward like they're going to stop this thing and then run um and and fortunately it missed the corner of a building by you know a few feet and did its thing and then a quick thinking person kind of reached up with the with the forklift and caught the line and slowed it down and all was well but uh, you realize that things can go awry pretty quick in that situation terrifying that does sound terrifying that how much was that weighing 40,000 pounds the the bin by itself was probably 12 or 15,000 pounds empty um, it holds about 47,000 pounds of of scrap in use, but this was just loading the empty bin into the machine to assemble it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. And so those people earn their money just because they yeah. have to be aware of everything going on. Every time we go to move a machine, I usually have someone helping. My brother comes over a lot or like the mill that the guy just bought. 
And as we're like, we've got the big piece hooked up and ready to make its big move. I, I always remind everyone, including myself, if it falls, it falls like run, like don't it's for that same reason. Your instinct is like, no, I got it. No, it's 2000 pounds and you're dead. Like that's what it is. Right. But it's good to just like put that out there to get that fresh in your mind. Like, no, if it's going over, it's going over with, with, or without you under it. Yeah. Especially if there are people that are not, you know, haven't moved stuff, you know, it's a good instruction to just say, you know, if this starts to go, here's the plan, you know, get out of the (laughs) way, make sure you have an exit path because, because you're not going to stop it. Um, and ideally you, you've planned better than to have that happen, but you know, things happen. So you have to have that kind of contingency plan being safe as far as being, you know, observing safety constraints and stuff on ropes and, and straps, you know, don't, don't take it lightly. One of the things that my dad lifted with the backhoe was a car off of a neighbor, um, who was paralyzed for the rest of his life because he had used snatch blocks and some old rope to lift a car, to hoist a car up between two trees and then crawled under the car to work on it. And the, and the ropes broke and the car fell on him. So, uh, yeah. So you gotta, you, you gotta observe those things. Yeah. I threw out some stretch recently just for that reason. It's just not worth it. Air on the side of overbuilt when this, when you're dealing with this stuff, that's, that's my, philosophy on this just if it looks like that's good enough double it you know you want to be better than good enough so that's i don't know i had uh when i was researching the um rigging tanda um one of the interesting facts i ran across said that uh rigging is one of the few uh careers where you have to be apprenticed because there's so much intricacies, like industrial rigging, there's so many intricacies to uh, everything involved that it's not something that they really can teach at school. You have to actually be doing the job. You have to be on the site because things happen unexpectedly and you have to apprentice uh, in order to do it. And I think they said like the average pay for riggers was like 52000 a year, something like that. Yeah, I think when I was kind of researching it, that I found the same thing. It was right around right around fifty k or something, but it's it's very specialized skill. And usually, if you I mean, if you hire a crane, if you need to move something big, and you hire a big crane like we did, it will you know they'll send out an operator, a crane operator, and a couple of riggers and and people that are you know a team. It won't be just a guy in a crane because they don't want you taking on that that responsibility with their equipment and not knowing what's going on. Well, shucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial energy loops and stuff. Hello, this is Chet down at Johnson's Hardware. Are your chains too short? Are hooks confusing to you? Can't untangle your ratchet straps? Well, we have just a solution for your rigging needs. Introducing Wondrous WYSIWEB. That's right, from the team that brought you Silly String, Wondrous WYSIWEB. 
Our patented high-pressure spider silk foam can unload on your equipment for transport in mere seconds. Put it where it needs to be and spray it down. This stuff will hold it in place no matter how far you need to go as long as it's under 72 hours. Items must be stationary while being sprayed. And it is safe for securing small children as well. Biodegradable, but not recommended for eating. This will secure loads up to 37 pounds. If you would like to get your wondrous WYSIWEB, please contact us at patreon.com forward slash megaskills and get your first can for only $13.67. What the heck, Nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. All right, it's time for crossbreeding. Tom, what skill goes well with rigging? Is buying you don't need a skill? Because I'm an expert. Uh, I think if you can be an expert at it, it must be a skill. I think you're right. I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I mean, if if there's a rating system that goes along with it, then it, then it must be a skill. Hmm. I'll allow it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's a skill, but it sounds mildly entertaining. I'll expand on the idea. Getting in, buying things that you have no clue how to move is uh is a skill that I have been mastering for for quite some time now. I'm pretty good at it. Mm. I buy lots of stuff and I go, I don't know how to move that. And then, and then I figure it out. That's where the rigging comes in. All right. All right. I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. That sounds good. Tanda? Sweet. Tanda, what skill goes well with rigging? I'm going to say not tying. Not tying is a skill. <laughs> or secure, securing loads. Not, wait, not tying or not tying? Yeah. Because you need to tie. Yeah, to tie or not to tie. Tying knots is what she's trying to say, Tom. Tying knots. I don't think that cleared it up. It doesn't matter. I, I give her, you know... I do want to learn how to tie knots, though. I need to take some time with a length of rope and just, like, practice. Like, I probably only need three knots. How many knots do I need? I think there's, like, a book of, like, 400 knots for sailors, isn't there? No, that I'm aware of, but how many do I really need? 400. Ugh. Tanda? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Bazinga. Bazinga. (laughs) All right. PJ? Well, design? No, definitely not. I'm going to go with the old classic, packing. Packing is the perfect skill to go with rigging. Because once you load that stuff, it's got to get organized in such a way that you can load more stuff. It's true. You don't want to just load one thing. You want to load several things, right? It's all got to be organized. That's very true. I don't think we could do an episode on packing, though. But that's not the criteria. We definitely could do a packing episode. I thought we did do one, didn't we? Oh, if we did, I don't remember. I can't remember. I don't what, even know what I don't know what today's topic was. Uh, pirates. Talking about pirates. Re- reading? Did we do an episode on reading? I think we, this is the episode on reading, isn't it? I, I think so. That's why I had I've got an encyclopedia sitting here. I mean, for some reason. Check my notes. Yes, it's oh, look, reading. He's reading right now. It's reading. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sick and tired of this bullpocket. Tom, I understand that mm. you're sick and tired about something. Brand bashing. Oh. I'm sick and tired of brand bashing. I think it's, I think it's, uh, you know, in our pre-show, Tanda pointed out that within the maker community, there's not a lot of this, and I'll explain it, but um, then we said, well, the, the people that live in the suburbs of the maker community definitely complain about this constantly on, on the interwebs. Would you agree? 
I think so. I mean, I think that within our community, people pick up a tool and they use it. And, they, and they, you know, if it's not quite the best, they make do. Yep. If they can afford the best and they, you know, it's something that they do a lot of, they get it, but they're not real, you know, find a lot of tool snobs. Right. You definitely don't. But it seems like there are people out there who are collecting the nicest of every tool and not and not making as much as makers who are just getting whatever tool is nearby or that they have access to or can afford and just making the most of it. Right. I totally agree. So I'm I'm a little on the fence here because I will bash a brand if they make garbage. If they make something like like you 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 know you know what I'm gonna say, Tom. You know what I'm gonna say? What? Grizzly. What? Bring it. Grizzly. Huh? Grizzly. All of it? I have yet to see a good grizzly tool. Every single one I've come into contact with has had some kind of cheap like nonsense. Like I have I'm I'm just disappointed every time. Every single tool. So that's fair, okay? That's fair, but you have firsthand experience, correct? Yes. Multiple times. Yes. Your opinion is valid, according to me. What I am talking more about is, and, and the reason I'm sick and tired of it is because I keep buying more and more Ryobi tools. Mm-hmm. And Ryobi is like, can you say red set, redheaded stepchild of the tool community? Is that... That's probably insensitive to somebody. Well, it'd be like the, the green-headed stepchild. Yeah, sure. Well, we're still picking on stepchildren, but that's besides the point. But, like, they keep getting knocked down for no reason. I'm like, you totally misunderstand the brand, for, for one. And two, you have never used a Ryobi tool if you're bashing Ryobi. Just, you haven't. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, I, I recently, Ryobi Days is going on, and by the time you hear this, it's over, so sorry, you missed it. I got all the tools. I bought a chemical sprayer. It's like a, maybe it's a one-gallon chemical sprayer for, like, bugs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I used it, and it's nice that you don't have to pump anything, because that's what it's doing. That's the motorized battery component of this thing. But it was garbage. And I wonder if I got a bad one, because it wouldn't stop pumping, so it would pump, cause pressure, and then you push the trigger manually and it sprays. Mm-hmm. But it never stopped pumping. It never reached a cutoff where it was full of pressure, whatever that pressure might be. And it caused whatever the weak link in the line was, it would it would leak. It would start squirting liquid out of those seals and gaskets. I'm like, this is, something's wrong here. And it might, it might have just been that one. But... So I'm not like, I'm not saying that they make everything perfectly, but I have like, I think I have like 15 or 16 Ryobi tools at this point, And I have almost no complaints other than that one and maybe one other. Tom, I, I just had this conversation with my neighbor today. Uh, he's a Milwaukee guy and I am slowly like being attracted to the Milwaukee cordless tools. I have uh, my m12 die grinder from milwaukee and it is phenomenal like i use it almost every day in the shop he was talking to me he's he's got like a lot of their stuff he just saw me using it and he's like oh yeah i I don't have one of those yet and he came over and played with it and he said you know i was doing i was looking the reviews on the milwaukee 18 inch chainsaw and he said it had one star and it had like a thousand reviews and he's like, I couldn't understand why why it only had one star. Maybe it was some kind of anomaly. But if you look at all of the reviews, 
it says that within five minutes of using the chainsaw, the chain jumps off every single time. Like every like people just keep returning it. There's some kind of design flaw in the chainsaw where it will not retain the chain. It just keeps, it'll cut for mm. five minutes and then it throws itself off. And I said, my neighbor's Bobby. I said, Bobby, I said, you know why that is. I said, because this is the only chainsaw they've ever made. Milwaukee is not a chainsaw company. So this is like their prototype model. And he goes, yeah, but they've been making it for years and they haven't changed it. And I said, well, they're going to have to change it eventually if everybody keeps complaining because they keep returning them. So even even a good company like Milwaukee who makes rock solid tools, yeah. you're going to get something that if it's the first one they're making, it's not going to be exactly right, you know? There's going to be issues. So that could be the like is that the first chemical sprayer Ryobi has made? Uh maybe in that size, but they have like 5 on the market right now. They always have five of everything. Hmm. Like their drill, they have like six or seven different drills. Well, yeah, but they've been they've been making drills for decades, though. No, that's fair. Well, I, I would say their outdoor stuff is definitely their newer stuff. But like even like you know string trimmers, they've gone through probably eight string trimmers by now. It's probably more than that. Their whole thing is like go wide. Like they are putting out every tool. Just in in this room alone, I can, I'm looking at a hot glue gun, an inflator for like an air mattress or something like that, like a high flow. I've got a buffer. I've got a radio. I've got a couple lights. Like this stuff is so cheap. Like the, the hot glue gun is $30. I don't believe anyone else has a hot glue gun in their battery lineup of the major colors of the major brands. DeWalt has one. I've seen it. I don't know how good it is. Is it theirs though, or is it somebody else's that uses a Dewalt? Because I think Wagner does that with their batteries. With um, it's it's DeWalt a yellow. Batteries. <clears throat> it is a Dewalt brand. It is a Dewalt okay. brand. Um, now fair enough. The, the the first two that you mentioned there, the inflator and the glue gun. I went to Home Depot when they were having a sale. I don't know, last summer, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find them. Like those were the two things that I wanted, and they didn't have it. So, yes. You're not wrong. Um, It is hard to find some of the more unique items from Ryobi, especially at the store. Um, I've had trouble with that too. But like the soldering iron is in the soldering iron aisle. You have to go there. It's not with the Ryobi tools Mm -hmm. in the tool corral. Um, The nail guns are with the nail guns. Like you have to go looking for this stuff now, which I find annoying. I wish everything was in one spot. Because, like, the whole idea is to buy one battery. Mm-hmm. I just want to validate my opinion a little bit. I really like my Festool products, too. Right? Like, I really enjoy the quality I get out of an expensive tool like a Festool tool. But I'm not buying a Festool glue gun. I'm not buying a Festool fan. I'm definitely not buying their lights, even though the professionals should buy them because it's more important. I'm, I'm buying these oddball tools that i would not buy on a battery platform but i can afford them because they're so cheap well i think that i think you kind of hit on it with the you know whether you're a professional user or what you use the tool for if it's something you're going to throw in a toolbox and take with you to a job site and you need to count on it that's a different tool than if you use it twice a year and and it's really nice to have when you when you need it and so i mean i think that that you don't need the, I mean, I've got a huge variety of different brands and I've bought them more because 
for something that I occasionally use and it'd be nice to have or I want to try it out, I'm not going to buy the most expensive one. But if there's something that I use a lot and is, you know, critical or, you know, maybe not critical, but at least it's something that I don't want to be caught out without it working, then I might spend a little more money and get a different a different brand for that particular tool. I could see that a little bit, but I have seen multiple times. Most recently, my mother got a new bay window put in, and I talked to the guy for a few minutes. He's been doing window installations for 25 to 30 years. I forget what he said. And he's got Ryobi battery-operated nailers for trim work laying on the floor in her house. Like, that guy is doing this. He's putting in multiple windows a day, every day. And he's using he's using a Ryobi thing. I'm not I know I'm promoting Ryobi. I'm just picking the underdog in this fight. That's my angle, right? So I'm not saying you should all buy Ryobi. I'm saying like Milwaukee obviously is a wonderful brand. But don't buy your Milwaukee drill and then pretend like you know anything about the Ryobi drill, right? And that's what happens a lot on the internet. Well, I mean, and that's probably just human nature as well. I mean, I just spent, you know, X uh, amount of dollars yeah. on a tool. And, uh, and in as part of my justification for having done that is, you know, it, it's better than something else. <laughs> and so, you know, part of that, I think, is just human nature and one-upmanship to justify what you've just done. Suckers. Yeah. Hey, I've got, the, I started out, my first rotary tool was a Ryobi. And it was the blue Ryobi from, you know, the early 2000s. And that thing yeah. ran for 15 years. You know, I didn't use it every day, but it ran until I think the the speed controller went on it or something. It wasn't the motor. So it failed. And then I didn't buy another one. You know, like I didn't go out and get a Dremel or anything. I just, it stopped and I was like, oh, well, I mean, this was the one I liked. They don't make it anymore. And then weirdly enough, a few years after that died, I was at an auction and I found a set in a case that was the same blue Ryobi rotary tool. And then right next to it was a uh, an electric um, Ryobi carver. It looks just like a rotary tool, but it's like a, I don't know, what do they call that? Like an impact carver, a power carver. It's got like the little chisels mm-hmm. you put in the front. And I was That's like, cool. oh man, this is sweet. I didn't even know they made this. So now I have like the same thing again, but it's like a better set because it's all like together and it does more stuff. So like that thing works great. So I think that, you know, if you, you got to use something and have experience with it before you can say anything about it, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, I have not used any of the new Ryobi stuff other than I borrowed your inflator when we were at uh, Tony's slip and slide and my air mattress was going (laughs) down. And when I used it, I'm like, dude, this thing is quiet and powerful. Like it, it inflated the air mattress in like 60 seconds and the pump that i had took like 20 minutes you know the little electric pump so i'm like man i need to get one of these and every time i've gone to home depot since then and that's been two years ago i never see it and i'm I'm at the point where i'm like i must have to just order this online it's i can't find it there i've looked them all the time i believe you is it is it not Um, in the tool section is it somewhere else i think it is I think it is in the tool section. Um, with that thing, I've actually 3D printed different nozzles for different air mattresses that I've had. Um, that was the first reason I bought it. We were going camping 
and like there's no electric outlet so how are you going to blow up your air mattress and yeah you can buy one for your car but that's kind of lame so and again it's like a 30 dollar tool yeah no battery yeah but you have batteries so i like i would i don't i don't know what if there's a deal during the ryobi days with this but like i would love to get that inflator the 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 little air powered gun and the glue gun yeah like because those yeah. two things i have i have a cordless glue gun that is made by oh, i can't remember that it's it's a known name but it's you can't buy it anymore it's probably like 30 years old but the way it works is you put it on a base and the base has the electric power it heats it up and then you just pull it off and the whole thing is hot and so you could just sit there mm-hmm. and you can squeeze it and then It'll, it'll work for a little while, but it won't work indefinitely. You have to put it back on to heat it up again. Ryobi just came out with one of those. They So they have two glue guns now. One is like the traditional looking size. And then they have like a crafting one that goes into a base that takes the battery. And you can pop it off, use it, and put it back in the base to recharge. Or I don't know how it really works, but it sounds like you do. It, it's, just a, it's just a matter of, think of it like a removable plug. Mm-hmm. So it's working off 120 volts. It heats up the heating element that melts the glue, and then when you pick it up, it just disconnects the electricity, but the whole thing is hot. Mm-hmm. So the glue is liquid. You just squeeze the trigger, and you you know, you know use it for whatever, and then you put it back on, and it reheats up more glue. So it's it's a ingenious system. No batteries. It's just heat. Mm-hmm. That's cool. But you know, I would love to have one that I could actually like continuously walk around with and glue like whatever that I wouldn't have to be you know corded. But yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up online and see if it's possible to just order it because I can't I, I don't know I'm looking in the wrong place. I've looked at the sales displays and I've looked at the the actual tool section. Different Home Depots carry different things. Um, so this one, my sister and brother-in-law needed something. I wanted their eight. They have a new eight-inch chainsaw, and I, I I like a small chainsaw. I have an old Ryobi one. It's not that great, and I was like maybe I'll get a new one, and it is great. But it was not available anywhere around me, anywhere in Connecticut. And I asked my sister if it was available by her, and she bought it with the battery. And she comes down here all the time. So she's in Binghamton, so she's three hours away. And I bought her the multi-tool that she wanted. So you do you do have to shop different Home Depots for sure. And it just may not be available in your area uh, based on, you know, demographics. I don't know how they determine that stuff. Yeah, here we're still using uh, oxy oxycetylene glue guns, which is which is a pain because you got the hoses that you're dragging around and then you have to light them and, and everything. Yeah. By you, don't you just put the glue gun outside for two minutes and then it just melts to nothing and you yeah. can use it that yeah, way. Yeah, you can use it that yeah. way as well. But if you're inside, then then you have to go with the oxy. That's true. I forgot about you. So a lot of people do use them inside. More what I came from. All right, it's time for short and sweet. Tana, you got anything to wrap up the show? Uh, if you haven't seen it already uh, and you're familiar with uh, Jason at Fireball Tools, um, he just did a ratchet strap test video where he dispelled a lot of myths on whether you should twist or not twist a ratchet strap and how many twists and if they degrade if they're wet and have less power. And uh, his videos are always entertaining as well as informative. That was a great video. That was fantastic. It was actually really interesting. I was surprised by some of the results. You should definitely go watch it. Well, with that gleaming, um, I don't know, what, what do you call that? Praise from Tom. Um, mm. Do you have anything for short and sweet? Or is that it? 
uh, Ryobi Days is probably over. I don't know how long it lasts. It might be a week. It might still be going on. You buy two batteries and you get a free tool. It's pretty awesome. I bought four batteries and got two free tools. I don't know how many batteries I need to buy, but I I, I need the two tools. So that's, do I need to buy 20 batteries? How, how does that work? Four, four, <laughs> four batteries. batteries. It's a two-pack. Comes with, comes with the charger. Cool. Well, I'll probably do that. Uh, for me... Uh, I may actually have, if the guy does not flake out, a buyer for the 18-inch grizzly bandsaw that's been living in my shop for the last nine months. So this guy's supposed to come tomorrow during a thunderstorm and pick this thing up. So hopefully it'll be gone. And then I'll just... I don't regret buying it because I knew it would sell, but it's been taking up so much space in the shop. It's a big piece of machinery. So, So that's it. That's all I got. And dragging a grizzly out of a guy's shop in a thunderstorm has got to be a good story. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram, and you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, what if this thing happened? You know, what would you do? So, in keeping with our rigging theme and the sailing riggers, I of course thought, what if we were on a pirate ship, the three of us? What if somehow we got teleported from today in our shops with some of our tools back to the 1700s on a seafaring pirate ship? What would we do? Like, we're makers on a pirate ship. Are we going to, like, yeah, Tom? Yeah. First thing is I'm taking a cannon, four cannons, and they are going They are going to point off the, on a 45 degree angle in the front, on every corner of the ship. 45 degree angles. I don't know why all the ships had to have cannons only pointing out from the center. <laughs> Like, I think you put you put one cannon on a 45-degree angle, you win every battle. So that's first. Okay. Well, assuming that the pirates would let you do something like that, it sounds like a good idea. Well, I think when they see a guy dressed in shorts and a t-shirt just magically appear on their boat, I think they either do one of two things. They, you know, kill me immediately, or they listen. So there's a 50-50 chance. I mean, I'm I'm thinking probably kill you immediately. These are pirates. But, I mean, let's say we got teleported into, like, a closet or something. Like, they, they didn't see us show up. So we're, 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 we're not, we're not like, shock and awe. We're safe for the moment, you know. So we're still alive, and we brought some tools with us. So I'm a stowaway. We're stowaways. Yes, we're stowaways. Oh. But we have, I don't know, a, a whole boatload of Rayobi-powered battery tools or something i i don't know we have some we have tools from our day and age on the pirate ship so let's assume that it's a hostile environment because 
pirates are, you know, they're not known for being super friendly unless they're in like a Disney movie, right? Pretty much. So, so what do we do? Like, you know, we're, we didn't choose to go there. We're, we're, we, we recognize from the smell we're on a pirate ship, right? <laughs> it's got that piratey smell. So what's, what's our first move? Like, what are we trying to take over the boat? Are we trying to get off? I mean, what, what's the go-to I don't think trying to take over is is the first move, but uh, I mean maybe we could just lay low for a while and uh, unless you have a nail gun. Hey, we could have a Ryobi nail gun. Yeah, that's that's true. Although pirates had guns, but not nail guns. <laughs> not nail guns. That's true, but but nail gun would fire rapid rapid fire. You know those they yeah. had seventeen hundreds. They would have had like a single shot, like a you know black powder gun. You know it would have been. <laughs> black powder nail gun. <laughs> yeah, you, you have like oh, a. Oh, that needs which, to be made. That needs to be made. You've got like a little ramrod, and you you put it in, and you you tamp you tamp down your black powder, and then you drop your nail in, and then you, you have Sorry, your guys. I'll be back. You, you arrange. You get your flint and, uh, and and set off your nail gun. Back in ye olden days, when Ryobi was black powder. That's right. Yeah, all of their early stuff was black powder. So, so let's let's assume that we've got we've got enough nail guns to uh, to defend ourselves. So, you know, the first the first pirate that wanders into our um, the rum closet where we happen to show up gets like a nail in the eye. So that that's a uh, that's the deterrent. And his wooden eye. I, I don't know. I don't know if I would go hostile right away. I think I would just uh, just wander out and start, you know, looking around for things that might need fixed up, and and just start fixing them. You know, maybe you know, hot gluing some stuff back together, or or you know, nailing some stuff back together with the nail gun, and, and just be like, uh, hey, is there anything else we could be doing? Uh, well, Tanda, I, I think at this point I should remind you of all the superstitions about women being on a ship. <laughs> yeah, I'm taking um, my shirt off at the moment they, I'm seen. <laughs> Look, clear weather. I'm just hoping that the wind stops immediately when I do. <laughs> well, you took my idea. I don't, I don't even know what to do from here. All right, so at this point, Tanda and Tom are both topless on the poop deck. <laughs> with with nail guns. I'm up in the crow's nest with a nail gun. I think you have to rely on human nature. Pirates at sea alone are just, they're just guys. They're not pirates. Oh, you're right. I'm, I'm leaving my shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> for the moment mine's still off but like they're not pillaging at the moment they're just working like they're doing the nine to five so they're not in like go mode you know so they're not putting on the act for the for the uh target so i think you can just present yourself show them some cool stuff and they're going to be a little confused and if it doesn't work i think you can just say parlay and then you get to talk to the captain and like, there's a reasonable thing that happens there. Yeah, I'm just picturing pirates like like scuttling around as soon as they're seen to put their eye patches back on and get back into pirate mode. You know, <laughs> they're, they're actually just playing go fish or something. And then uh, you know, Jimmy, get my leg. Yeah, <laughs> Captain Jimmy. Totally. I think they would befriend you because they. I mean, they're opportunists. They would profit from whatever you know, and you know things they don't know, and I think they would be wise to that. Okay, so let's say we're able to to negotiate a, a, a friendly arrangement where we're staying on the ship, and we agree to we we agree to improve it 
so that they could plunder better, right? That's right. They say, listen. So we're back at the cannons. Yeah. So then, so uh, what? what is the, the, like, how do you even move the can? Well, now we're back to the rigging because those cannons are, you've got to, to put them at a 45 degree at the front and the rear. There are no cannons at the front. Kitty corner cannons. Yeah. But how do you, we'd have to get them there using the ship's rigging. No, manpower. Manpower. I, we got plenty of. No, I mean, I mean, I think they would be pretty adept at that. So what might we have with us that, uh, that could facilitate that that they wouldn't have in in their day. I would say we would put them not just on a forty five, but we would make them turrets. I think the turret technology would eight thousand pounds. Yeah, cannons are heavy, dude. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, we'll just get a couple guys. No, those things are heavy. No, they would just sling it up. They'd be able to rig that. I mean, rigging is sailing. Some ratchet straps might be handy. They they might like they might appreciate some ratchet straps. I bet those guys know how to tie some that, knots. That'd be a good offering. That's four tons, okay? We're not lifting that with just guys. You you need some some crane work there. Well, guys and guys and snatch blocks and rope. Oh, yeah, because that worked out so well for your neighbor, right? Well, I mean, this this is pirate rope. This is tried and true tested rope. And besides, we're not going to crawl under the cannon and start working on it. It's rum-soaked rope. But yeah, I think we'd have to lift it up with some <laughs> ropes and some pulleys and, and swing it over onto like the front deck and everything. Totally possible, though. Possible, totally yeah. Possible. It's totally possible. I think, you know, they have to be able to move the cannons. That's, that's, that, they're on the ship. They can't always be in the same spot. Yeah, but I think that can... I, I don't see... You know, I'm thinking, you know, 8,000 pounds is... That's a land cannon, not a sea cannon. You don't know that. When I was I was just reading a book and You're right, I don't know that. <laughs> the the cannons the cannons are actually rated by cannonball size. Yep. So you would have um a two pounder, four pounder, ten pounder, and I think the biggest was like a twenty pound. So that's the size of the cannonball. So then you have to exponentially, you know, like the actual cannon itself is massively bigger. For controlling these explosions, you, you can cheat. You can cheat on your cannonball rating if you use uh, tungsten for your cannonballs, or you know something really dense. You know they, yeah, but they didn't always use single balls either. They used, um, you know, the equivalent of birdshot. They would throw a ton of little stuff in there to um, to hit as many people as they could on the other ship, and then they would use they would use um, you know the single heavy ball for doing structural damage. I think maybe grape shot is the word. You're still talking about um, the, the actual cannon itself, depending on the size, unless it's like a two pound cannon. I'm looking at this thing though. I mean, it's bronze, so yeah, that's not light. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that most of most of the day to day cannon moving and and aiming and stuff, they would be pretty good at. But if we whipped out like an iPhone and and zoomed in on the adversary and showed them that we could uh, we could immediately pull up ra- range and direction and and uh, that would earn trust i mean not using gps or anything just like using the accelerometer and level in your compass because we would and the measure app kind of be devoid of uh, cell towers i would guess so wait no google no no google no 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 google no gps no cell towers so you can't google the name of the captain on the boat we can't we can't even call one another on our cell phones Oh. But we could flash messages across the deck. So we, we build them some turrets. We get these things moved. We build them turrets, and we teach them how to use the turrets. Yeah. And give them an, an accurate uh, you know elevation system so that they can, they can gauge uh, how far to shoot. Yeah, but they knew that stuff. Okay. I think that they knew it by eye. I didn't think that they had any kind of um, like— No, they had one of those— uh... No, you could probably use a sextant. 
Thank you. I didn't know the word for that. Or 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 just a protractor of some kind. If if you, but I don't know that you would you, you would calculate range to something and then set the height. Oh. Other other than by experience. Real quick, uh sextant is S E X T A N T. You're going to want to not misspell that. But go ahead, Tanda. Tom apparently has some very interesting websites on his computer at the moment. Well, I have some explaining to do about my web history to my wife now. We'll figure that out tomorrow when she wakes up. Do you, uh, is do you have some sex ants porn? Yeah, it's on? best we don't. It's best we don't discuss. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I won't bring it up again. Okay, so once we get the cannon situated, what's the next thing to actually like improve the ship with our with what we have? I mean, the first thing I think of is well, we'd probably have to go to port, but if we could get some metal plate. And drill the plate, make holes, and then actually screw the plate to the outside of the ship. We could make an armor-plated ship. Oh, dear. He's going to mount his crane. Oh. I don't think you're going to find metal plate in that time period. Maybe we could have it made? Hmm. I mean, they they did have foundries. They were making guns and stuff, and they were making cannons, so there was metal. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, if we could armor-plate the ship, that would definitely, you know, that would be a big advantage. Stop a few cannonballs from hitting, you know, going through. I think you drop. I think you drop weight. I think with the turret, the turrets you need mo- more mobility and agility. And if you just drop weight, somehow convince them to just like, why are there railings on a pirate ship? Like we're all adults here. We'll just don't fall. <laughs> or or slide or slide across the deck in a storm. So like, drop all that wood weight. Well, just you just hold on to a rope. They got rope. Man, I don't think that railing's saving anybody though. Uh, I don't think that's really going to be that big of a weight savings there, Tom. It's, it's just a railing. Uh, th- thousands of pounds? I know, I know. Throw all of what? the cannons overboard. <gasps> I was just thinking that. <laughs> that would save a lot of weight and then just run. And how is that helping? Put all of the cannons up in the up in the bow and just ram the opposing ship and drop all the cannons into their ship. Yeah, that's there a great we idea. Well, then it sinks and you don't collect anything. Well, that's... That's a possibility. Okay, so we need to we need to come up with something to help them catch a ship. I got an idea. You make the ship more agile and quicker, and you just run up like directly behind the ship where they can't shoot you, and you you make a mechanism that reaches out over the front of your ship. Front of the ship probably has a name, like the bow, I think. Stern's in back. And you you hook an anchor to their ship and then drop the anchor. <laughs> Just grapple them to the bottom. Just grapple them to the bottom. They can't move. They can't detach the anchor. And uh, they're sitting ducks. And then you just shoot them with the 45 degree cannons and you're done. Or we could make a big anchor launcher and just launch the anchor at 45 degrees into the ship. I don't know, like a trebuchet. What if, well, the anchors are odd shape, so it's be hard to launch those. But maybe if you made the anchors round and like put them in a cannon and shot that, (laughs) that might work. Oh yeah, the good old round anchors. Those are the best. Yeah, the good old round anchors. Well, they shot they shot harpoons <laughs> out of cannons, right? I mean, they were specially made, probably air ca- air cannons or cannons. But I think that I I don't know. I I was born in 1985. I'm not sure. I can't be positive. Oh yeah, back when I was a kid. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> back when you were a kid, they were using all those cannon harpoons. You know, back yeah. in the old days. There. Yeah, when we when <laughs> we first sailed across to this country. On a, on a whaling vessel, <laughs> you know that, that makes me wonder something. I, did you think that they had blacksmiths on the ships? Yeah, probably. 
I think guys just knew stuff. But do you think they had a? Do you think they had a forge on board? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, yeah, totally. They had fire. I mean, before DIY was a thing, like I think DI was the thing. Sure. Like just <laughs> do it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, th- here's what I'm thinking. See, if you if you look at any of the navy ships, okay. The Navy ships are completely self-contained. Like they have a machine shop. They have spare metal for anything that breaks. They have to be able to manufacture it. So they're like, they're out to sea for months at a time. They have to be able to fix stuff when it breaks. Well, the pirate ship has got to be the same way. And a lot of this stuff is wood, but there are some things that are metal. And if the metal thing breaks, don't you think they would need a blacksmith? Absolutely. To actually like make something? 100%. I've never seen that before. I've never seen it anywhere. It makes sense that there would be one. Well, because the Disney pirate is make-believe. So if we had a way to uh, to generate enough power and, and had the choice of things to take with us, a welder a welder, and, and some means Ooh. to generate power would be a, a magical thing. Well, wait a minute. No, we don't even have to go that complicated. Uh, we got Tom's Ryobi blower. That would heat up a coal forge super fast you know just forced air yeah oh yeah that'd be yeah. that'd be a nice blower yeah that would make it things go quicker the guy that normally has to turn the crank could take a break yeah he'd like tom <laughs> until the battery ran down yeah i don't know what the cfms are on those blowers but it's high like like i said it it inflated that mattress quick really quick uh you can use that on a fire i i mean i stoke my my bonfire with my ryobi leaf blower that works great all right. Is there anything else that we we think would be we would be of service to this pirate crew while we're there? Assuming they haven't killed us by now. Well, if we're bringing power tools, I'd feel like I feel like jetpack is on the table. So Ryobi doesn't make a jetpack. Well, not yet. Not yet. So we're talking about like right if now. If we're talking about time jumping here, I can jump into the future just as easily as we jump back in the future. All right. You can't switch it around, Tom. We're we're going from today back in time. We're not like flying all over the place like back to the future we're just taking the tools we have and we're back on the pirate ship all right fine right now i think the only person that's got a jetpack is that bretling company you know, over in uh wherever the hell they are and they were recently flying ship to ship in their latest videos i, I wouldn't be surprised if tanda had a jetpack those things are cool I, i'm fairly sure if we showed up with a jetpack we'd definitely get shot man flying around yeah that that's witchcraft they're they're not going to stand for that the tools I think they might tolerate, but flying dude, that's that's some bad mojo right there. Well, it's there. kind of, but it's hard to shoot down a person in a jetpack with a with a musket or a cannon. They'll think you're like a god or something. I don't know, man. A well placed knife or a hatchet would probably do the trick too. You know, <laughs> you know. I think they'd pretty much be using anything they had. They got that big harpoon cannon. Don't forget that. We built them the turrets, you know. I think the turrets are are all you need. What do you honestly. think would be the most uh, the most shocking thing to the pirates of us arriving with our battery operated tools? Clothes. Most shocking? Yeah. My Ryobi taser. <laughs> <laughs> that would be shocking. You got you got me there, Tom. Oh, they'd freak out. They'd kill you just because they weren't. They didn't know what else to do. I think their fight or flight would kick in. You think, or you think that they would be? You know, they've they've seen a lot. I mean, they're pretty worldly folks. Would they just think we were from some weird, weird place, weird culture? I mean, we're obviously still human. No, to see that even the color of Ryobi would be a shock. Yeah. Well, well, Tom, the they had that color back then. We just didn't see it because of black and white movies. 
But even back even back when I was a kid and we we first sailed across on the whaling vessel, yeah, things were in color. They they just didn't depict it what? that way in movies. Why would they make them in black and white? I don't understand. <laughs> I can remember when the world got color. <laughs> Everything <laughs> used to be black and white. And then uh, and then suddenly things started changing colors. I don't get it. I don't know what they it was right there in front of them. They could have just made everything in color. I don't get it. We may never know. Uh, I for sure think it was going to say that. That's that's for sure. <laughs>